This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, we're talking anti-Tory tactics. There's a move afoot in parts of the country to hold US-style primaries where all of the anti-Tory parties get together and try to agree who will have a clear run at trying to oust a Conservative MP. Is it a good idea? Is it anti-democratic? Will it work? We take a look at our big thing on today's episode of the podcast. Before that, Rishi Sunak's troubles continue. Should he be worried about losing his own pollster? Matthew Paris and Manveen Rana take a look at that. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me live for Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio. Just listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Now, I'm not saying there's not much news around, but this was the BBC's 10 o'clock news last night. Our political editor, Chris Mason, who joins me now. If you wonder what's happened to my tie, I've, uh, so am I, I've lost it somewhere this evening, it's disappeared. So on the hunt for that. Hope you find your tie. Thank you, Chris. Extraordinary, extraordinary scenes. More on that when we get it. And in fact, the reason that Chris was on the news last night uh, with his tie is he had been interviewing Simon Clark. Sorry, Sir Simon Clark, if you don't mind, about his call for Rishi Sunak to go, likening the Tory party to the Titanic. Yeah, Simon Clark insisting that speaking out about the looming crisis for the Tories was never going to be popular. No one likes the guy who's shouting iceberg. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> of course, in Titanic, everyone liked the guy who's shouting iceberg. It was the guy who's shouting iceberg. Who, if anything, they should have been listening to more. Everyone liked that guy. He was the good guy. People should listen to the guy who's shouting iceberg. And actually, I think if I'd been such a strong supporter of the Prime Minister outlived by a lettuce, I think I'd be careful about being... The guy who's shouting iceberg. Just a thought. Just a thought. One other bit of breaking news. A major capital letters big news story. Yoga and aerobics and Pilates instructors in Essex are about to go on strike. They're voting to go on strike in a dispute over pay. They say they've tried to be flexible. But after months of bending over backwards to find a deal, it was just too much of a stretch. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew... On Times Radio. And we say hello to Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hello. Hello. And uh, this week's Matthew is, of course, Matthew Paris. How are hello, you, Matthew? Hello. Now, we're going to start with a, um, a scientific experiment. So, um, there's a, a, an American scientist has suggested that we should be putting salt in our tea. Michelle Fransel, a chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, uh, says it helps to make the perfect cup. Here she. So, we've all got a cup of tea. 
which is nice. And I've got the salt. <laughs> this is Michelle speaking to ask me on breakfast about what we should be doing. You don't put any, you put such a tiny pinch in that you really don't taste any of the salt. So that's the key. If you mm -hmm. taste it salt, then you put in too much. So all it tastes is a little bit smoother and a little bit less bitter. I, I tend to use it when I've left my tea to brew too long and I don't want to dump it out and start again because I don't have time. So I'll just add a little tiny bit of salt to it and the tea is definitely improved. Now, I've got I've just tipped some out of my hand. Do you want to have the salt there, Mary? I'll take a bit of that. Is this just because Americans don't like anything which doesn't taste like cake? Yes. <laughs> uh, they don't know what tea is, really, yep. so how would they know whether it's better or worse with salt? Because they, they you know, the idea that, it's, it, that tea is too bitter... Seems like, you know, <laughs> they just want to put sugar in it, don't they? So anyway, I've, I've, put, I've put a decent amount in mine. Oh, well done. I think you well, overdid it a bit. Did you? Uh, Matt, a yes. <laughs> no, not, not for the first time, I think. <laughs> right, very good. Go on then, Mavin, what's it like? Well, I've, I think I've got the, the right amount in that I can't really taste it. No, I can't Can really you? taste it either. No, it makes no difference at all. It, tastes, it takes a little bit of the edge of tea and... The question is, do we want edge in our tea? So, 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 <laughs> some, some people like the kind of tanniny edge. Yeah. It, in, in other words, it makes it blander, which is what an American <laughs> would want to do. <laughs> but that you, sounds about right. You already do this, man. Yeah, I do, I do. I mean, look, this is, this is news you can use. Um, I do put salt in my tea when I've got a cold. Right. And then I put in enough where you can actually taste it. But basically, it gets rid of a, a, cold, a sore throat very quickly. Does it not make you very thirsty? Broadcasting tip. Uh, not so much. I've, but done, it just sort I've of, gargled with warm water and salt, but then you spit it out while they're swallowing yeah, it. Yeah, well, you just put some in your tea and it's, uh, it fixes it. It's so. a great, great <laughs> disinfectant, salt. I, yeah. I put it onto wounds. Yeah. And it Ouch. works. Ulcers. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. It'll clear up an ulcer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll make you swear. <laughs> <laughs> but not putting salt on ulcers on air. That's definitely a... <laughs> Off come Somebody uh, just texted in and says, when has salt been a good thing? Dietary advice from America, are you sure? But that's also the other thing. <laughs> should we, we should be taking salt out of our diet, really. Yeah, we'll we? have heart attacks if we put too much salt in our tea. Um, well, the uh, US Embassy has joined in. The US <laughs> Embassy in uh, London has put out a statement saying <laughs> uh, uh, that the reports of an American professor's recipe for the perfect cup of tea has landed our special bond with the United Kingdom in hot water. <laughs> Uh, we cannot stand idly by as such an outrageous proposal threatens the very foundation of our special relationship. Therefore, we want to ensure the good people of the UK that the unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not official United States policy and never will be. Well, the, the embassy have been badly burned before. Do you remember when a previous ambassador said that Americans don't eat lamb? He had to go to Wales to, to apologise. Well, the, the, the statement goes on. The, oh. United, the, oh. the US embassy will continue to make tea in the proper way by microwaving it. Oh, do, well, do you remember there was that appalling video that went absolutely everywhere? It was all sort of on, on Twitter for a while of an American showing you how to make tea in a microwave. I mean, it's an abomination. Yes, yeah, we yes. shall be doing that. We shall be doing that. There's <laughs> no wonder we had to go our separate ways with the Americans. They're going to carry on like that. Uh, uh, right, very good. Well, we'll, we'll carry on. Uh, Paul also says, salt in tea, very good for your blood pressure than somebody else. Paul says, ah, isn't a, li isn't a little bit of bitterness the whole point of tea? I'm with Paul on that. <laughs> Just saying, mm, this tea is too tasty. Is there a way of making it blander? Is America's all over? They don't have good tea bags either, do they? If you go on holiday to America. It's they don't diff... really do tea. They don't have they don't kettles. Have... Yes. No. They, they don't they, really they, understand The kettles it. are unknown to them. Yeah. <laughs> That's because they're using the microwave. Yes, of course. <laughs> they shouldn't be doing that. It's all wrong. Right, uh, let's park that, the, the major story, and talk about some other trivial divergence. Uh, Rishi Sunak's woes continue. <clears throat> Sir Simon, no lesser a figure than Sir Simon Clark, uh, called him to go this week, having, uh, having apparently read the polls. Uh, and now, uh, on the subject of polls, Will Dry, who was polling for uh, Rishi Sunak in number 10, uh, he has quit as a special advisor and is now working with this un unknown group of former... It's a load of angry spads and some MPs, apparently now plotting uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, downfall. Um, how worried should he be about all of this, do you think, Matthew? Well, I'm a little constrained in what I would say because Will Dry is a good friend of mine and he remains a, a good friend of mine. He has made an awful mistake uh, he's fallen in with a band of thieves, basically, and uh, not, not I'm, I must add, literally, uh, so <laughs> po politically 
So, and I'm I, I'm just worried about how he's going to restore his um, career and his his reputation after they they stumble in into the ignominy uh, into which they are certainly going to stumble. But it's, the thing that surprises me is that I, the only thing I really knew about him is he'd been involved in the sort of young people against Brexit and wanted to. So he's been on quite a journey to go from trying to get Britain to rejoin the EU to throwing his lot in with apparently David Frost and some opponents of. Of Rishi Sunak. Well, I hope the journey uh, c- continues, and it might include a U-turn. It might come back. <laughs> continues on that trajectory, you'll soon be back where we started. He's a very nice guy and a very clever guy. Headstrong. Apparently so. <laughs> uh, what do you, uh, assuming that you're not good friends with as well, Manvi, what do you uh, make of this? He says he li- left last year because he became steadily more dis- uh, dispirited. It became clear to me we weren't the bold, decisive, uh, providing the bold, decisive action required to overcome those challenges. Uh, and he said that if Nigel Farage returned to frontline politics, the Conservative Party essentially won't exist by Christmas. Um, I just sort of... I, all of this I thought was astonishing because I can't believe they keep repeating the same patterns. I feel like most of my journalistic career, the last 20 years, has been all been about trying to count letters going into the tour. You know, being, <laughs> being a... a, a an MP in the Tory party is like a blood sport, isn't it? I mean, you can't keep a leader for long. You sort of feel like there's got to be an ousting, there's got to be a stalking horse, somebody will kick up a fuss. Uh, I just think it's, I think it's mad. Uh, it, it feels odd because the whole thing is predicated on the idea that somebody else would win an election. <laughs> and I don't, think they've understa- I don't think they've understood the polls. I can't see a candidate who would replace Rishi Sunak and do well. Um, and I don't think they realise that actually it's the process of the fact that they're constantly trying mm. to take down their leaders that makes them really unpalatable. I think a lot of people see that and, and don't warm to it. You know, there's no sort of sense of, well, maybe in that case we'd vote, we'd vote Tory. The, I don't think it's going to win them much support. The, the, the problem is insuperable. It, it doesn't really matter what the Conservative Party says or does now because they have uh, lost their audience. They, Britain will not give them a hearing. Um, they're heading for a, a huge rout at the next general election. Nothing the Prime Minister says or does will make very much difference. Um, if My advice to him, him would be just to get on with um, stable government fixing as many things as he can and stop even trying to win the election. I think this almost gives him an excuse, actually, yes. because he will lose spectacularly, but now he'll be able to say it was all the infighting. You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't kept trying to oust me every week, it, it might, have done, might have done better. It's interesting, actually. When we've been talking about this on how to win an election, Danny Finkelstein has made the point that the best thing you could do is get on and just, like yeah. you said, mm. address the things you can do, maybe put some long-term things in place... Uh, stop trying to win the election. And actually, the very act of doing that is probably his best chance... Plays to his strengths. ...of improving his standing. Yes, probably not yes. enough to emerge with a Tory majority, but he might limit the impact. You know, you could pretend... You know, I mean, that's probably a bit late to start now, but he could have maybe limited it to a hung parliament and a Tory return after one term rather than three or whatever. Um, but instead, the but sort the of infighting. thrashing around and the culture wars and the infighting. And, and the fact that you now have to remember... 12 names of Tory groupings. You know, it's just completely mad. That's what's Pop-Con? eating it up. <laughs> Pop- Popcon. If you're not excited about Popcon? What Go is on. it? Popcon. Popcon is Liz Truss's new thing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. To rival Suella Braverman's new thing. Yeah. No, Popcon is really exciting. This is Liz Truss. Weirdly, actually, and uh, stop laughing, man. It would be popcorn. She's it's, I bet karaoke is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it does sound it's like prescribed for every popcorn member. Popcorn does sound like you can meet some of Steps. <laughs> <laughs> popcorn is popular. It's the launch of popular conservatism, featuring uh, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, Sir oh, Simon no. Clark, <laughs> uh, Liz Truss, and Ranul Jaiwadina. I mean, hugely popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like for tickets, log on. Uh, Tuesday the 6th of February it's happening it's happening Uh, it's a new movement aiming to restore democratic accountability to Britain and deliver popular conservative policies I mean that's exactly what the Tory party needed another new movement Uh, as Mrs Thatcher would have said what a good idea (laughs) (laughs) I mean also we've got democratic accountability they're about to get democratic ability on you know steroids 
at the election. The, mm. the public are quite clear about uh, clear about that, and I just don't. Yeah, I just but, don't. But I do think this is one of the reasons why they could be in real trouble by Christmas. It's because that they're shedding supporters. You know, they're making the the party smaller they're and smaller by sort of yeah, yeah. by splitting it into tribes. That that's going to be the real problem. I thought, I, just maybe some very slim hope that all this idiocy and all these clowns will actually galvanise the vast majority of Conservative MPs who are perfectly sensible into act- actually putting their heads above the parapet. Yeah, and speaking at... Yes. That's probably the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the quiet ones yes. we need to hear from. I thought the Times, um, the Times leader on this was very good today. They basically say there's literally yes. no way back from, from a party which is just going to spend its whole time arguing with itself. Uh, so Simon Clark's kamikaze attack on Wishy Sunak does nothing but deepen the Conservative Party's malaise. Um, the, Tory, the British public are not fools. Tories Mark Four will not wash. Um, it's Rishi Sunak or no one. Although, according to that YouGov poll, of course, no one, or at least someone, <laughs> some mythical person holding ice cream. That YouGov poll it. didn't ask, would it be that no one yeah. who had just knifed their own yeah, leader yeah. in the back, which has always been the problem with I that think it was the Archangel Gabriel, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> it was the alternative. Would you like the Archangel I mean, Gabriel? Give him a go. Give him a go. In a moment, we're going to talk about uh, hunting for wild boars. Uh, I just want to ask about uh, philanthropy. Britain's richest people are becoming stingier and giving less of their wealth to charity even as their income increases, according to the think tank onward. The wealthiest 10% of households now donate half as much as a proportion of their income as those in the poorest 10%. I mean, to some extent, we've always known this, haven't we, Matthew, that the people who are less well-off are more likely to give a bigger chunk. Yes, well, the widow's might is worth more to the widow, generally, than the £10,000 from a multi-billionaire. Mm. I think the problem is that... We've drifted over really all my political lifetime in 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 Britain. We've drifted into thinking that problems are things for the government uh, mm. to sort out, and that uh, if if uh, nobody does anything, then the government will do something. And and one of the responses to to this latest news about the drop in philanthropy illustrates the point. Someone has suggested we need a philanthropy czar oh. who will go round, you know, telling people to be philanthropic. Yeah. The, the government, until people realise that government is not the answer, you're, you're going to get this response. The other thing is, Marvin, we've sort of drifted into being, sort of thinking the worst of people. Like, what are they up to? Somebody must be able to... Yeah. There's been this row about uh, James Dyson trying to give money to a school. And, you know, the impact that might have. And there's everyone's like, oh, oh, there must be something else going on. You know, people yeah. giving money, whether it's to political parties yes. or to good causes. We're sort of deeply suspicious and cynical now about well-off people. That they must be right. up to something. I think we're suspicious of people who are donating. We're also quite suspicious of charities and whether mm. they're using the money as yes. well as they should be, True. which I think wasn't the case in the past. Um, and, and I think it's just, it stopped being as cool as it probably was. Mm. So I think a, a philanthropy czar sounds like a terrible idea that's going to go nowhere. But if you look at America, the most effective thing was when you had very rich people turning it into a campaign. So Warren Buffett and Bill Gates would get together mm. and they'd call together all the sort of rich billionaires and sort of say, what are you doing? And it sort of suddenly became, you know, you couldn't turn up and say nothing. So, you, you know, you had, you had to start giving to look like you were part of the club. <laughs> you might get the wing of a museum named after you or something, you know. Yes. And, and there's a bit of like... Well, well you that's know. the other thing we've had in recent years. We've sort of had a lot of people who did have wings of museums named after them having the names taken down because yes. we don't like where their money's come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's made it harder Doesn't too. Help. Yes, they're back. The wild boars, that is. Very silly show today. Uh, once hunted to extinction, they're rampant in the Forest of Dean to the point where Forestry England have been culling them. It's killed over a thousand boars in the last two years. But what should we do about them all? Chantel Lyons has been studying the forest boar for 10 years and is the author of Groundbreakers, The Return of Britain's Wild Boar. Hi, Chantel. Hi, thanks for having me on today. It's good to have us. Uh, good to have you with us. So, how did this happen? Well, it's kind of a long story, and I'll try and be quick. Um, the there have been a number of escapes and also illegal releases um, in a few pockets of the country since um, around sort of from the very beginning of the 1990s or the end of the 1980s. In the Forest of Dean, in, um, particularly, um, there were two releases. The first one was in 1999. Um, small group of boar seemed to have been dumped by a farmer. In 2004, um, there was a larger group that was, um, most people say it was another farmer who went bankrupt in 
dumped them. But actually, I've been told um, that it was a shooting syndicate who put their money together to, to buy all these boar and release them in the forest so they could then shoot at them. Um, but whatever, whatever the case is, um, they proliferated. They have done very well in the Forest of Dean. Um, I suppose I wouldn't use the word rampant to describe the wild boar in the Forest of Dean. Um, they are, you know, they are very, they're a very adaptable species and they have been successful in the Forest of Dean. Um, and Forestry England has been culling them since 2008, so quite a long time. Um, and I, I certainly agree with the need to cull them. They, okay. they are, they are, like any species, they need to be uh, managed in some way um, by the environment, you know, or by us. We have always been a predator of the boar, right back to Mesolithic times and earlier. Um, and currently, we are their only natural predator in the UK, um, while we are still missing other animals such as lynx and boar and wolves. Uh, so what's happening in the Forest of Dean, um, Forestry England is sort of, does have a yearly cull, and they have a target of, they, they aim, they'd like to have the population to around 400 or so. It's slightly above that at the moment, but uh, it's, they've certainly become a bit better in recent years at uh, shooting them. And uh, it's, things aren't as bad as they used to be there used to be a lot of conflict in the area but it's really died down and, and people do seem to be adapting everyone's, now. everyone's getting along with them what do, where, where do you start on wild boar Matthew? well the problem uh, is this um there is one respect in which the boars are rampant the gentleman boars are quite rampant with domesticated lady sows oh. and the original wild boar population of europe would only have two or the sow would only have two or three piglets but um, British or um, European bred sows have 12 or 13 piglets, so they're reproducing very much faster. Wow. I mean, you could imagine if you were a lady sow, you know, living in a cooped up place, a, yeah. a little fling with a, Bit a of wild wolf. boar yeah. would be fun. Coming in on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What, what happens to, to, what happens to people eating the meat? Uh, yes, they are. Um, they, I mean, in the Forest of Dean, um, it's it's very popular. There are, you know, you can shoot them if they come onto your land and you have the license for the right rifle. Uh, so there's lots of private shooting of them. Um, and people, where, the village where I used to live when I was researching my book, um, people were always coming to the butchers to sort of buy the wild boar. So it's mm. quite a valued local commodity. But I'd actually just like to respectfully disagree with Matthew Paris on his point. Ah, oh, rate please do, it's what we're here for. Meters. Yes, so... <laughs> Um, there's a lot of misconceptions around wild boar reproduction. Oh. Um, they are an incredibly neat species, actually, because they, um, compared to a lot of ungulate species, you know, deer, cattle, etc., um, they are capable of having much bigger litters naturally. So um, they, in many wild populations, uh, on average, they do have larger litters than two or three, around six, even up to ten. Um, and in more northerly climes, those the litter size actually increases a little. So. Oh. Um, the, the average litter size in the Forest of Dean is around six or so, um, which is actually in keeping with sort of with, with wild wild populations or the, the, so there's a lot the of populations of in Europe. Mm. Um, and another, well, one of the reasons that a lot of people do say, oh, wild boar will have 12 or so at a time is because um, the sows live together in matriarchal society groups oh. um, and they essentially pool their litters in a kind of creche. So when you see a boar with uh, 12 or even more litter, I mean, I've seen one boar with 20 piglets in one go, and she definitely didn't pop those all out of <laughs> She's running the nursery. <laughs> Everyone else is hanging out. Mavid, I suppose the last big question is, if we're going to eat wild boar, should we be putting salt on it? Oh, obviously. Oh, no, I mean, I, I bow to Matthew's knowledge yeah, on, on all things wild boar, but I will say sausages, wild boar sausages. Wild boar sausages. Very good. Very yes. good. Yeah. Hugh in Swansea says wild boar ragout is really delicious. There we go. Which is, that's winning the most Times Radio text of the day. So thank, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Chantal, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you for that. Uh, that is Chantal Lyons, uh, who's uh, the author of Groundbreakers Return of Britain's Wild Boar. Of course, Matthew Paris would know all about the reproductive details of, uh, <laughs> of wild boar. And Manfred brought in some delicious chocolate from, from Davos, no less. Yeah. I'm not sure about salting tea. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Manveen Rana and Matthew Paris. You can read Matthew in The Times every week. You can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you're listening to this. Up next, anti-Tory tactics. Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. If you have an electoral problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can try tactical voting. Well, tactical voting is very important in every election for every political party. You could go to bed with Nigel Farage and wake up with Ed Miliband. The reason that parties are forced into these packs in the first place is because we have an electoral system that isn't fit for the 19th century. I don't agree with electoral packs, which is why we, as the Conservative Party, haven't done one. Yes, we're talking anti-Tory tactics today. Could tactical voting go mainstream at the next election and influence which party forms a government and how big their majority might be? Is it possible for all of the non-party uh, Tory parties to come together and form a team to defeat them at the election? Today, we reveal details of a crack commando unit planning to organise American-style primaries where all the non-Tory parties offer local voters a chance to choose their favourite, giving them a clear run at the seat. Will it work? Or will it turn out to be more Dad's Army than a team? Uh, we're going to hear from some sceptical Conservatives, a Lib Dem who's a bit keen, and a panel of experts to find out how much it could really change the results. First, I'm joined by one of the people behind the plan, uh, Simon Aldridge, uh, is on the line. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on, and I, I love the comparison to Ghostbusters. I'd like to think we're safe seat busters. Well, it's, it's the A-team, not Ghostbusters, Simon. Oh, oh dear, that's a bad start. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the references were a bit heavy-handed, but we should have made them clearer. So, uh, Simon, tell me about the organisation you've set up and what you're trying to do. Okay, so people assume that after all the chaos and corruption of the Conservatives that they're going to lose, but they're still predicted to win here in South Devon on, on just a third of the vote because the opposition's divided. Uh, and and it, it's very hard for the progressive parties to cooperate. We know that. So we're taking the problem out of their hands and we're running seven town hall uh, primary selection processes where people come along, uh, they question the Green, Lib Dem and Labour candidates and then uh, at the end vote on which one they think is best placed to defeat the Conservative. And then we all we add up all the votes at the end of the process um, we all come together and, and vote for that candidate and, and not just vote for them. We go out and help campaign for them and try and create that by-election buzz with many more people engaged in, in trying to uh, secure change. Um, how would it actually work in practice? Will the other candidates step aside or will they just not do any campaigning? Will they you, do you expect, you know, if, for instance, you went for uh, the, the, the primary, went for the Lib Dem candidate, would you expect the Greens and the Labour candidate to publicly endorse them in some way? Well, that's a really good question. And uh, it's, it's, it's very important to point out that we are not asking the candidates to step down. For a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, it would go against um, party rules, particularly Labour, who are standing a candidate in every seat, understandably. Um, but it would also, I think, be anti-democratic because not everyone's going to want to participate in this process. Uh, I, mean, you, I mean, you add up the progressive votes in this seat and it comes to about 57 percent um, compared to the Conservatives on about 32. And, and so there's, there are very many more of us. And if we act together, we can win. But we don't need everyone to join in with this. Um, so it's it's fine for the losing candidates. We'll stay on the ballot paper. But of course, we don't expect them to sink 
a lot of resources into a campaign when when it's been demonstrated that the local community um, favour another candidate. And, and so those scarce resources and people can go often be redirected to neighbouring seats where they do have a chance. You know, so we, we see this as sort of, a, you know, it's all upside for the progressive parties. You know, these are seats that are going to be lost anyway to the Conservatives. And we, we can help uh, by uniting the progressive majority. Uh, we can help uh, turn those over. Isn't this a sort of funny way of looking at politics, that you're just united against something, the Conservatives, rather than being clear about what is your for? Because the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, the Greens, other other candidates will have manifestos with different things in, and, and maybe people will want to vote for the thing that's in the Lib Dem manifesto and not the Labour manifesto. So instead of, instead of being a proactive, this is what I would like for the country, you're turning it into a negative, this is what I don't want. Well... This is, first of all, this is, um, we're a process, we're not a party with policies. Um, But there are very many policies that are shared in common between the progressive parties, you know, for one, uh, you know, a desire to take more serious action on on the climate and nature crisis. And that's one of the things that motivates me. And I would expect all the candidates in this um, process to to back the fantastic climate and ecology bill, which has cross support across, across the parties. Um, but, you know, and, and, and so th- there are many things that bind us together in these parties uh, and far more than, than divide us. You know, and we've got 1,650 people signed up locally now with hundreds of people out actively working together and campaigning on the streets. And they come from Labour, Lib Dem, Green parties. And, and it, that we're not talking about things that divide us. We're talking about this common positive goal that we have that for the first time in a hundred years we can elect an MP who represents our our shared values and and so we see that as a real positive I mean yes there's a negative we're we're really sickened by the 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 direction that this terrible conservative government's taken us in and we know a lot of conservative supporters are locally as well and that's why they're interested in this primary and so it, it's it's anti-conservative, but it's also very positive and in, in, it's sort of about reigniting enthusiasm in democracy. And, and we're getting such a great reception for this. And, it, and it's actually spreading. We're helping uh, other constituencies set up primaries. So we've got East Wiltshire, Melkshire and Devizes. And there's a there's a really big announcement coming soon for a, a primary that's about to launch in a in the constituency of a very big name Tory. So I, I won't spoil that. But that'll, that'll be out very soon. Uh, just finally, have the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, the Greens actually sort of signed up and agreed to take part? So the Lib Dems and the Greens have candidates and they've officially confirmed on, on BBC. Labour are, are racing to get their candidates in place. And and so just, you know, until they have the candidate, they can't give us the official go ahead. But, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity for these candidates, you know, particularly Labour, who's going to be coming in a bit later to get exposure to all all these people that we're going to be bringing along to events which we're live streaming as well and we're going to we're also going to sort of clip up the key things that are said in those meetings you know but for a candidate to win this contest they're going to have to reach out beyond narrow party lines and and attract um people who would normally vote for somebody else and that's why the green party particularly love this because they feel that they can sort of bring Labour and Lib Dem more over to support some green policies. So I think, you know, all the parties see this as a fantastic opportunity, you know, because yeah. if, they, if they if they win the primary, they're going to have this huge, positive, enthusiastic yeah. wave of progressive support behind them. And, and, and it's an, an amazing chance of winning an, an otherwise safe Tory seat that's just been the same for 100 years and, and sort of ignored. Simon, it's good to speak to you. Simon Aldridge there from uh, the Political Primary Network, specifically talking about South Devon, uh, but they've got uh, targets in other parts of the country as well, um, including the uh, the seats of some uh, government ministers even, suggesting that uh, there could be primaries in the seats of Kemi Badenoch, uh, maybe even uh, Michael Gove, the uh, uh, Armed Forces Minister James Heapy, even Jeremy Hunt, uh, suggests that there could be a uh, a live primary in his seat in Surrey as well. So what do uh, the Tories make of all of this? Everyone ganging up against them. I spoke to uh, the Conservative MP, Sir Gary Street, who's an MP in South Devon, 
I asked him what he made of this idea of the American-style primaries. Uh, well, it's a free country. And of course, if, if people want to do that, they can do that. I think I've got two or three reservations about it. One is that it is slightly anti-democratic in, in that three or four hundred, maybe five hundred people will come together and make these decisions uh, affecting who, who the candidates will be. Um, there are 70,000 voters in, in most of our constituencies. So for a handful, a few hundred people decide, no, you can't have a Green candidate, can't have a Labour candidate, you've got to have a Lib Dem, or whatever it is. Um, I think that's a bit bizarre. Uh, secondly, I, I just don't think it's going to work because I know that there is at least already one candidate, for example, in, in the South Devon constituency, uh, who's been working hard for a couple of years. And let's say there's 500 people decide that it should be the Green candidate and not her. Um, is she going to stand down and, and, and just wave the others on? I just can't see it. So I, I understand that while well, people are doing it, but I don't think it's going to work and I don't think it's going to have much impact. Um, I suppose what we've seen previously is the Conservatives, you know, the last election benefited massively from uh, reform not standing. So, you know, this this has played both ways before. People who wanted to vote reform in large parts of the country couldn't last time because of essentially a deal, albeit very one-sided, because... Nigel Farage offered the reform deal and Boris Johnson didn't have to do anything in return for it. But we, we have seen this sort of thing before, candidates stepping aside. We have. Um, that was a very specific issue to do with Brexit. I think it was the Brexit party, wasn't it, that stood back. Um, but we're not talking about this now. We're talking about a, a few hundred activists getting together to decide that thousands of people in that constituency cannot vote for the party of their choice. I just think it's weird. I, as I say, I don't really think it's going to work. And actually, it's... Because I think it is anti-democratic, I wonder if the Electoral Commission have been asked to have a look at this, because they are there to, uh, I've, just, I've written this down, they're there to uh, provide public confidence in the democratic process and to ensure its integrity. Well, I think this possibly undermines the integrity of dem our democratic process. That's not for me to opine on, but let's have a, I wonder if the Electoral Commission have a view on that. More broadly, given the state of the polls, I wonder if it's even necessary that uh you know particularly you know the, the, particularly the Labour Party are so far ahead it, it doesn't look like it's going to be a particularly closely fought contest no I, I agree at the moment it looks as though we're going to get a right old thumping at the polls in November or whenever the election comes a la 1997 I mean I still believe actually because I, I believe so much in Rishi Sunak I believe we will pull back and it will we will be competitive the next election but you have to you'd have to be a strange person to bet against a, a, a Labour majority and therefore if in, in for example in the seats thinking about doing this primary stuff if the Labour candidate wasn't the one selected are they going to not allow a Labour candidate to run and therefore not be a nationwide party I can't see that happening so I think this is a few activists um I'm afraid getting their knickers into this come up with a good idea and I just don't think it's going to work. Gary Streeter, the Conservative MP in South Devon on this idea of holding primaries where one uh, anti-Tory party uh, candidate will be chosen and the others would, if not step aside, then uh, give them a free run. Labour hasn't endorsed the tactical voting. Lib Dems are more keen, saying it is key to locking the Tories out of power for a generation. This is Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, speaking earlier this year. Today, I'm launching Ed Davies' Tory removals. It's the Blue Wall's premium unseating service for Conservative MPs. Well, Richard Ford uh, was elected in a by-election for the Lib Dems in Tiverton and Honiton in 2022. You remember that was the seat where uh, Neil Parrish had been the Conservative MP and had to stand down after looking at porn in the House of Commons. Richard Ford overturned a 24,000-vote majority uh, for the Conservatives right at the time when Boris Johnson was, was engulfed in Partygate. I asked him how much of his victory was down to tactical voting. Well, I think there was very significant tactical voting in the Tiverton and Honiton by-election. I mean, I'm realistic about it. I owe the fact that I was elected to the support not just of core Liberal Democrats, but many Labour voters, many Green voters, and also some Conservatives who, who switched to voting Liberal Democrat at that 2022 by-election. So what do you make of this idea of sort of formalising that, rather than leaving it up to voters to work it out for themselves? 
I personally don't think that voters very much like the idea of some sort of backroom stitch-up. I think voters like to be able to to have a full panoply of, of choice in, in terms of political parties. That's not to, to, to dismiss the, the great work that's been going on in South Devon with this primary network. And the people who are proposing these primaries, I think, have done a fantastic job in pulling progressive voters together and um, people who are, are just really keen to see the Conservatives kicked out. But actually, what we need to see is electoral reform, because only through electoral reform can we then see people able to vote for the party that they would genuinely like to support. Would you like to see a discussion, an acknowledgement, an agreement between the Lib Dems and the Labour Party? They would see, for instance, you in a Tory-facing seat in the southwest, essentially given a clear run by the Labour Party, and in return, you know, where it's a Labour, Tory, marginal, the Lib Dems, if not step aside, certainly step back. No, I, I wouldn't. I think that the fact is that we're standing on different platforms, we'll be standing on different manifestos. And the reality is that the Liberal Democrats are the only party that are offering electoral reform. I know that there are many Labour supporters who would like to see us uh, abandon first past the post and would like to see us have a, a more proportional voting system. But uh, the reality is that the, the top of the Labour Party it doesn't seem to be embracing that right now. On, on domestic policies, in terms of the, the sort of the day-to-day lives of voters going to the polls this year, is there anything that the, the Liberal Democrats wouldn't go along? You know, investing in green energy, investing in public services. Is there anything that the Lib Dems would disagree with on domestic policy with the Labour Party? Well, we've got um, a fantastic prospectus in terms of the National Health Service. And while perhaps Wes Streeting is talking in, in some fairly conservative terms about health reforms, I think what the Liberal Democrats recognise is the NHS is really struggling after a, a long period of conservative spending restraint around the health service. Um, you talked about proportional representation, how that, that's, that is a policy difference, which it is, you know, the Labour Party uh, are, are much less keen on that than the, the Lib Dems. How do you get that? People think, well, I'd like proportional representation, uh, I'd like to see the voter system changed, so I should vote Lib Dem. But Ed Davey won't say that he would go into government with either of the main parties. So how do we get proportional representation as a result of voting Liberal Democrat? It will be in our manifesto, just as proportional representation has been in our manifesto for the Liberal Democrats and prior to that, the, the Liberals for for decades. But you um, didn't get it yeah, when it, you went into coalition with the Conservatives. So how do you get it without, while, while taking a position, you won't even say you'd potentially go into government with the Labour Party. So how do we get proportional representation? We get proportional representation by electing more Liberal Democrat MPs like me. I mean, it's as simple as that. We are fighting for every single MP that we can get in this next parliament. But if we Ed, but if Ed Davey we're, won't... We're, we're, we have Ed, 15 MPs at the moment. That's not going to be enough. Um, but you're not going to have any made. influence if Ed Davey has said he won't go do any sort of deal with the Conservatives and he's suggested that he won't go into coalition with the Labour Party in the event of a hung parliament. So how do you get to change the voting system when essentially Ed Davies already said that whatever happens at the election, you are going to sit on the opposition benches. Well, we can definitely have influence over the next government. We're having influence over this government. Just yesterday, the Conservative government announced that it was going to be introducing a bill on operator self-monitoring. I've been pressing for this, and I've introduced a, a bill in Parliament earlier this month. The Conservative Party has now said that they will adopt that as legislation. This is influence that current Liberal Democrat MPs are having on the government of the day, and we will absolutely be doing that in the next Parliament. But what difference would tactical voting actually make at a general election, particularly when the Labour Party are already 20 points ahead? Uh, Rob Ford is Professor of Political Science at Manchester University. Hi, Rob. Hello. And Miranda Green is Deputy Opinion Editor at the Financial Times and a former press secretary to Lib Dem leader Paddy Ashdown in the run-up to 97, where the Lib Dems made big gains uh, through tactical voting. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Matt. So, Rob... It... <laughs> What impact would, if we look, assuming that the polls stay about what where they are, what impact might tactical voting have at a general election? Is it undemocratic, as Gary Streeter says, with people getting the knickers and twists, won't make any difference, or could it actually decide, if not the outcome of the election, the scale of the result? 
it can make an, an impact on the scale of the result Matt, at pretty much any point in uh, the polling spectrum. I, I had a go at crunching the numbers on one scenario on my on my uh, uh, substack, the swingometer recently. And um, you can add potentially 20, 25 seats to the Lib Dem total, 20, 25 seats to the Labour total if you get a high level of tactical voting. And the reason for that is there are just an awful lot of seats, a legacy of 2019, where there's a substantial Labour vote and a substantial uh, vote for another progressive party that's not Labour, usually the Lib Dems, sometimes the Greens as well. And the reason for that is there were an awful lot of voters who were broadly on the left who didn't want to vote Labour last time. And this is one of the preconditions for tactical voting is that voters for the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, they have to see the other options as broadly speaking acceptable. And for a lot of Liberal Democrat voters in the south of England in particular, the idea of Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street wasn't acceptable. Um, but a consequence of that is there's a lot of Liberal Democrat voters available to tactically squeeze this time around. Um, Miranda, are you getting flashbacks to sort of 95, 96, 97 uh, and the Lib Dem hope of, of making gains precisely because the sort of get the Tories out mood is actually much stronger than any individual policy of any individual party? So many flashbacks, uh, Matt, <laughs> nightly, nightly. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've poured over Rob's calculations on this. And like him, I think there is a lot of potential. But I thought that your interviews on the Devon primary scheme were really important because the public don't like pacts. And actually, I think both Labour and the Liberal Democrats and all, even the Greens and Plaid Cymru, who stood down in a couple of by-elections to give the Lib Dems a fair, fair uh, run at things, for example, in Brecon and Radnorshire, where the Lib Dems then took, took the seat from the Tories. Those sorts of explicit pacts didn't go well in 2019, for example, where they had this scheme called, I think it was called Unite to Remain. And it actually failed, I think, in every single case where other parties stood aside for an anti-Brexit candidate. So I think those lessons have been learned. But I think equally, there are lessons from, for example, I don't know if Rob would agree with me on this, but even from the 2015-2017 election, for example, you know, Ed Balls lost his seat in Morley and Atwood by what was it 400 or so votes would that really have happened if Labour campaigners had you know not got distracted with other fights and other seats that weren't winnable and concentrated on the ones where they needed to save a big Labour name and I think this is part of the key calculation for the parties it's not so much about pacts and arrangements and it's more about targeting your resources and your efforts where you are actually the best place to unseat the unpopular government of the day and so i think in a sense clearly you will have every tory mp and spokesman under the sun for the next six months saying all pacts are anti-democratic but i think the opposition parties have learned from their mistakes and you won't see pacts you'll see much cleverer mm. targeting of resources and and that and that's important because you know it's all about as rob said this magic word the squeeze you have to put the squeeze on the voters of the alternative opposition party often in the last few days and hours of a campaign, right, to make sure that when they go into the polling booth, even if they have to do it with a peg on their nose, they vote for the person who's actually the candidate that can unseat the incumbent. And I think that's going to be, I mean, we should, we should make yeah, yeah. clear this is very much about England, because in Scotland and even Wales, it's more complicated because of the nationalist parties. And there might even be interesting tactical things to discuss about the, about the anti-SNP vote, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, as to where you go. But, so this is very English conversation, but I think it's hugely relevant um, this time. I mean, I know some of Rob's colleagues in the sophology world are a bit more sceptical because they think that the awareness among the voters locally of who really is in second place isn't uh, that yeah. high. Now, I, but, you know, Rob, I wanted to yeah. ask you about that because the, the, the slight complication in all this is the boundary changes where in some areas the seats have been carved up so much people think they're in, a, I don't know, a Tory seat. It's then become a nominal Labour seat, but they might think that the way to beat the Tory was to vote Lib Dem. So how do you... Because so there's like an education job of trying to explain to people. I know they're in this seat now. We know that what happened last time. But in this seat now, it's a new seat. It may or may not have a new name, but you might not know who the person, the, the best place party to tactically vote for is. 
It, absolutely, Matt. And I would probably bet against tactical voting uh, actually delivering many wins in seats like that, where you have like a big change in uh, the boundaries, where you have potentially a change even in the second place party. Firstly, because it will be very confusing for voters, but secondly, also because it will be a bad bet for the parties as well to spend a lot of time trying to win a seat like this. The thing is, this is a target rich environment for all of the parties because of the huge change we've seen in the polling. So why would you send your scarce activists out to try and educate the voters with bar charts in a seat where you're not even sure yourself who's in second place when there's a seat next door where you're five points behind the incumbent MP and it's really obvious uh, that you're in second place. So I think seats like that will just end up falling off the party's target list. And I would agree with Miranda. I think these things like the, the primary, the, this pr political primary thing, that's all very well. And it's, you know, helpful for a certain activist slice of the electorate. But for the vast bulk of voters, it's the infamous Lib Dem bar charts or their Labour equivalents yeah, yeah. that are going to yeah. do the work here. Uh, most voters are not going to be tuned into things like these primaries, but they'll get the leaflets. And that's the first real sense they'll get of who do I want to vote for if I want to get rid of the local Tory MP? And th that's the other crucial thing here. It's a very anti-incumbent mood out there. So there will be a lot of voters who want that information, yeah. um, but won't really know how to get it because they're not really tuned into politics. Uh, when they get those leaflets, I think that's going to be the critical thing. So where those leaflets land, where those activists go knocking on doors, that's going to be really crucial for where we see this tactical voting, I think. Miranda, you were never involved in a, in a dodgy bar chart, were you? <laughs> no, that's one thing I can say hand on heart. <laughs> I've, never, I've never personally produced a dodgy bar chart. Um, but, you know, I've certainly thought a lot about this question of, mm. of how you, you know, rem re retain the level of democratic options locally for people. And I do think that's really, really important. But also, you know, the electorate is incredibly sophisticated and under first past the post, voters are pretty much aware in England that yeah. you have two two levers to pull, right? There's a big blue lever to keep the Tories and then there's a non-Tory lever and it's got different colours in different places. Yeah. And people do understand that. I mean, obviously, you know, we were talking about the glory days of 1997, you know, which was a kind of, when the tide went out for the Tories, it then lifted, you know, both opposition parties really, really significantly. Um, and of course, at that point, an incredibly useful list was actually published by a Labour supporting paper, the Daily Mirror, which literally oh, told, yeah, yeah, people yeah, which told where, people, you know, so and if there you get lots of websites would do the same thing as well, which is some. Um, yeah, which have much more limited yeah, audience. Yeah, audience. Then the, Daily, the Mirror map then became a story of itself, you know, and at that point, you've got really good information yeah. for voters. whether they can actually pull off a, a similar trick to that this time. Uh, we shall see. Miranda, good to speak to you as ever. Miranda Green there from the FT, former press secretary to Lib Dem leader Paddy Ashton back in 97. And Rob Ford from the uh, University of Manchester. Uh, Callum's been in touch saying, I suggest tactical voting to stop Labour having a massive majority, uh, which is a view. And Tony says, progressive majority, just a bunch of anti-democratic, self-righteous, smug, and then a word that's a bit like twits. Uh, I've got a home in South Devon and I wouldn't give these idiots the time of day. Let us know what you think about this idea of tactical voting. Will it work? You can email me, matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.